Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. Fresh weather warnings issued as the country remains in the grip of our coldest winter spell since 2010 and air travellers face disruption. Crazy, absolutely crazy. Mental. Mental. We don't want to fly again. <laughs> Katanisha says he has the support of his party as he prepares to take over as Taoiseach again and comments on a video of him socialising. I'm confident in my judgement. Um, I'm confident that I have the support of my parliamentary party and the other coalition partners uh, in government. Um, everyone makes errors in judgement. You wouldn't be a human being if you didn't. Join our conversation online with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. First tonight, former Sinn Féin councillor Jonathan Dowdle has begun giving evidence at the Special Criminal Court in the trial of Gerard the Monk Hutch for the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel in Dublin in 2016. Mr Hutch has pleaded not guilty. Well, earlier, our courts reporter Deborah Naylor outlined today's evidence for us and firstly gave us some background on Jonathan Dowdle. Well, Jonathan Dowdall, he's a former Sinn Féin councillor. Uh, he's a married father of four. He was at one time with Jared the Monk Hutch charged with the murder of David Byrne. So he was due to stand trial originally in the Regency murder trial. However, earlier this year, uh, he pleaded guilty to facilitating the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Hotel alongside his father by providing a hotel room at the Regency. And it was during his sentence hearing uh, that it was heard that he had given a statement to Garthi, given evidence incriminating others in the trial, that he was making himself available for the prosecution in this case. So Jonathan Dowdall turned state witness. Uh, today was the day that he was up in court as a witness. OK, so he made a series of allegations today. Bring me through the evidence that he tendered about the feud between the Hutch and Kinnahan gangs. Well, he started off in his evidence giving kind of a, a brief summary of, of his ties with the Hutch family, those being kind of familial and work ties through the years. And he then went on to describe how he was told that Gary Hutch was shot dead in Spain. Uh, that was in uh, September 2015. So that was a year before David Byrne's shooting at the Regency Hotel. He said he was told that Gary Hutch had been shot dead by the Kinnahans because they believed that he was an informant. He was also told that uh, Patrick Hutch, that he tried to kill Daniel Kinnahan and that a, an agreement was subsequently made that uh, Patrick Hutch, who was Gary Hutch's brother, that he would be shot in a, in a punishment shooting and that he had been, he said that he had been personally shot by Daniel Kinnahan. He described then things getting out of hand in the Hutchkinnan feud and he said uh, that he was basically asked to intervene to speak to his Republican contacts to see what he could do to try and, and mediate and resolve this feud. Okay, bring me through the evidence that he gave about an alleged conversation that he said he had with Jerry the Monk Hutch. 
Well, he said that it was days after the Regency Hotel attack that he um, he got a call and he was asked to meet uh, Jerry Hutch in a park in Whitehall in Dublin. Now, he alleges uh, that at that meeting that Jerry Hutch was was agitated, that he was in a panic. He described him in court today as being in a state that he had never seen him in before and he said that he was upset and that Jerry Hutch told him during that conversation that it was them at the hotel. He said he wasn't happy about the shooting of the young lad David Byrne and when asked uh, today in court if Jared Hutch said who shot David Byrne, he said that it was him and Mago Gately. So he will continue giving evidence tomorrow. What can we expect from Jonathan Dowdle? Well, today the prosecution indicated that they wanted to play some of the tapes. These are the 10 hours of bug conversations that have already been heard in the trial. Another critical part of evidence in this case, they've all been admitted as evidence in the trial. The prosecution said that they wanted to put portions of this evidence to Jonathan Dowdle. Now, the defence objected to that today. They said they weren't on notice. So this afternoon, proceedings adjourned a little early because they said they wanted wanted Gardaí, uh, you know, to take a statement from him. We are expecting that the prosecution will, will go through this evidence tomorrow morning. We don't know how long this will take, but once the prosecution finishes, well, then it's over to uh, lawyers for Jerry the Moncutch, who will be uh, vigorously, robustly, we examine, we imagine, uh, cross-examining Jonathan Dowdall. All right, and you'll keep us updated on that. Deborah Naylor, thank you. Well, next, Housing Minister Dara O'Brien is facing a no-confidence motion tomorrow over the housing crisis. I'm joined on our panel tonight by Fine Gael TD, Emer Higgins, People Before Profit Deputy, Paul Murphy, Irish Daily Mail political correspondent, Craig Hughes, and by landlord Jeanette Brown, who has found herself homeless. And it's to you I'm going to come to first, uh, Jeanette. Uh, you are a homeowner. You ho own an apartment here in Dublin. But a job opportunity came up for you, didn't it, in Dubai last year? And you decided to take it, yeah. to move to Dubai and to rent out your property. Yeah. And naively so, I guess. So I left in 21, July of 21. I, I got my affairs in order to come back in July of 22 submitted what I believe to be a valid notice of termination to my, to my tenant um, and returned to Ireland in August. Um, it wasn't a, a linear transition. I expected to be able to stay in a particular home and, you know, things don't always go to plan. So I found myself in a very precarious scenario. Um, it's led me to where I am now. My notice got found to be invalid by a government agency, um, a charity, sorry. Um, my tenant was, was all on board for, for the eviction. They understood, and I understood everything to be coming up to January. Um, it, the charity in, in question found the notice of termination to be invalid. That also happened around the same time as the eviction moratorium. So it was just a combination of, of things that came all at once. And it's created this level of anxiety that I've never experienced before. That's my home. I am not a multi-property landlord. I'm not somebody who has the opportunity to stay in one house while I rent out another. That's my home. And I just want the minister to understand that, that the eviction ban has created this, this issue. And I'm not the only one. And I feel compelled to come here and, and say this to you this evening to make people understand that this is, is where it's gotten to. So your termination notice was invalid, but by the time you realised that the moratorium, the eviction moratorium, had come in and yeah. therefore you can now not evict your tenants until March at the earliest? At the earliest, but it will have to be six months from now, so it'll be June. 
Um, the technicality that the eviction notice was found to be invalid on was something that I believed I had done correctly. It was a statement of declaration from a commissioner of votes that I got signed by a, a Dubai-based commissioner of votes because sure, I was there. Mm. So, um, and that was actually advised to me by a legal body here. So, I mean, the information wasn't available to me to do the right thing from, from what I know, mm. unless it's written somewhere in black and white. I didn't see it anywhere on the the ORTB website, I didn't realise that I had to get this signed by a Commissioner of Votes in Ireland. So you tried to do everything by properly and by the book? Yeah, absolutely. And it's So just, what is your situation now then, Jeanette? Um, at the moment, I'm between homes, I guess you would say. So I'm not, I'm not anywhere in particular. I'm just trying to get by. I, I came home to a job. So that has been a challenge to keep that in, in check while dealing with this. And I... I I'm so grateful to my, my employers for allowing me the opportunity to get this sorted because I've had to take time off work. Like the RTB are probably the most difficult body involved in all of it to, to get a hold of on the phone. I had to take a day off to do that. I got no satisfaction there. Um, and what about your search for alternative accommodation? How has that gone? That is difficult. Um, there is very little to find and I think that's part and parcel and why the, the eviction ban is being imposed. But I mean, what's happened here is they've, they're kicking the can down the street. They're not enabling, I mean, to, to create a problem in someone's life, to, to solve a problem in another person's life, for me, is, it's not acceptable. Um, so I mean, ideally I'd be able to find somewhere to rent. It's just not working out that way. And I'm so grateful for everyone who's helped me along the way. I have people and people are really very much so doing what they can. And I've had people today from when the article went out that, that have got in touch. And, you know, I'm so grateful, but it shouldn't be like this. I bought a house. I, I rented out in good faith. It was supposed to be one year and it's turned into a nightmare. And my objective is that I find out from the minister if he is planning, if he is planning to extend the ban, which I feel could happen um, based on everything that's gone on. It doesn't seem to me like the homeless scenario is being in any way made better since this has all happened. It's two months down the line and figures are getting worse. So my, my, my question is to him, if, if he does extend the ban, will he please reconsider people who want to go back into their homes? Because I'm not a landlord, I'm just a person. Like I just want to go back into my home. Um, who has helped you out since you moved back from Dubai? Where have you been staying? Uh, between family and friends, um, things don't always go exactly to plan. But I, I've, I've, uh, at the moment, I'm, I'm between certain family members' homes. Um, you know, it's overcrowding. You can't expect people to take you on with all your stuff and your emotional baggage and all the other things that come with it. Because this has been my, I, all my energy has gone into this. So people are sick of listening to it as well. <laughs> so have I'm, you a bed? Have you a room, a guarantee of a room every night? Uh, not every night. But some nights, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's difficult. It's just, it's just a tricky scenario, and I'm, I'm in it. And I just want to make sure that going forward, if this is extended, which I fear it will be, um, that the amendment is made, and the, the error and the flaw is removed, and the legislation is improved, because this isn't right. It's not. I don't, I don't believe it is. Do you feel though that perhaps you took on a risk last year when you decided to rent out your property and, and you did become a landlord for one year. You could say that, but I mean, you'd want to have a crystal ball to have, to have foreseen this, you know? I, I would never have, if, if I knew this was, a, this was a, 
a risk or this would have happened, never in a million years would I have done it. It's not worth it. Mm. And I'd say that to anybody considering to become a landlord in this country, really do your research. You need, you would want to have a degree in law is the way I'm looking at it now. What to impact get is this having it. on you, Jeanette? Um, it's just taken over my whole way of life at the minute. I don't generally, um, I'm not political. Like I wouldn't, this wouldn't be where I'd see myself on a Monday night. <laughs> I'd like to be just in my home, you know? It's not something that I want to be this heavily involved in. The Times article was definitely a last resort for me. I just wanted to get in touch with somebody to give me a voice, to allow me to be heard. And it's led to this. And I'm very grateful for everyone to allow me to have the opportunity because till now it felt like I was banging my head against the wall. I was emailing the minister, I was emailing all the people that I needed to, but I wasn't getting. And I still don't know if they intend to extend the ban, and if they do, will they just please re-amend the legislation? All right, Ima Higgins, what do you have to say to Jeanette? Well, I suppose the first thing to say, Jeanette, is I'm really sorry you found yourself in this situation. And the second thing to say is to give you that reassurance that the minister doesn't intend to, to, to leave this ban any longer than what's already been announced. And um, the reason for that, I suppose, is that this is a short-term measure. Um, it was announced as a short-term measure, emergency legislation underpins it, and that legislation is, is, is dated. It's timed and it's dated. Which um, is March of next year. Yeah, indeed. And, and it and won't as, be extended, you say, beyond that? Yeah, absolutely. That's my understanding, yeah. And the reason for that, and I suppose some countries do this, some countries in Europe do have winter-only eviction bans, and that's because winter, as we know and we see it at the moment, is when our homeless services are under such pressure. So it's about trying to, to reduce the burden on them during this time. But we what about the burden know, on somebody like Jeanette, who said you tried to fix one problem, but you've created a huge problem for her? Yeah, she She's right. There are people who end up in, in what is not the intended situation, absolutely. What we want to do is protect tenants um, and protect tenancies during this time. But there are some people who, who want to move back into their own home who are caught in that. So um, is this an unforeseen consequence? It, it's a foreseeable consequence. And I, and I suppose the minister weighed that up and, and his decision was to proceed with this winter ban in that it would, it would impact most people positively. But unfortunately, there have been people like Jeanette uh, and, and support needs to be provided to her. And, and I'm sorry it hasn't been so far, but we need to, we need to make sure that that is provided. Because Do you think she should have been enough. exempted? Homeowners who wanted to move back into their home should have been exempted? Well, not necessarily, because that's not ne necessarily fair on her tenant either, but she certainly needs assistance to at least find somewhere uh, short term for her to have secure accommodation herself until she can move back in after that eviction ban. Uh, Paul Murphy, you called for a permanent mm -hmm. ban on evictions or at least a ban until the end of this cost of living crisis, whenever that might be. Where does that leave somebody like Jeanette? Well, I mean, I, I have every sympathy for Jeanette, um, but I don't think the answer to Jeanette's circumstance or other people who want to move back into their, their own property that they own is to make the tenant homeless. I, I think the answer in a circumstance like Jeanette is, is if we had proper rent controls, well, then Jeanette could use the rental income she's getting from the tenant to go and rent somewhere else. Um, I think, I mean, Emer says it's does, reassurance. So you don't think Jeanette has a right to it's, evict see, it's not just her Jeanette. tenants and move back into her own property, just to be clear. Correct, I don't think so. I think that there's people there currently who it is their home. Like, and and I, I'm, I'm sorry to say that, and I do appreciate you're in a difficult situation. I don't agree. But it, it is their home. They're not on the programme tonight. But can and I e just Emer say... says that she's giving reassurance. But that is devastating news to people in private rented accommodation because it might mean that we're, it will mean that we're facing a tidal wave of homelessness 
come, come March. That's what's going to happen but is that if the eviction ban isn't limited. But then but let's have rent the controls. Answer, how is the answer to the government's homeless scenario that, that is their responsibility to push the responsibility back onto the private sector? How is that? I will never be a landlord again. I just want mm -hmm. that to be made really clear. And I'm sure many like me feel the same. So I don't, I feel like you're creating a massive, massive issue socially as well. But the problem is there's a lot of landlords who use that excuse to say, I'm moving back in or I'm moving a family member but in listen, or whatever. But it's and not an excuse. And no, I appreciate and that. And if it's a, one, but, if it's a sole happens, property you know? owner, it needs to be accepted that they have nowhere else to go. But, so but if, what about your tenants? Where do they, what if they're going to be made homeless? I, do you know what I mean? I don't want to get into the circumstances of my tenant because yeah. I actually want to respect her privacy. That's a situation that I don't want to get involved in, but I can just say she's very well protected. Mm -hmm. And from what I have learned, being on this journey myself, is that tenants and people that are looked after by these charities and these organisations are the ones that are being protected, and landlords certainly are not. I am not a landlord. I am just exactly. somebody You're just who left. Person, like, I appreciate that. Yeah. But la yeah. landlords so as a just, whole. Okay, we'll just let Paul back into Co that. Corporate landlords are making huge money. Yeah, I know, but we're not talking. Like, in fairness, we're not talking about corporate landlords yeah. here. We're just talking about an individual but person if you who rented up, out her and, private and family home. Yeah, yeah. And now can't move but back if, into. But if you open up a situation where someone can say, "I'm moving back into my home," and then I can evict someone on that grounds. Then that is going to be. It already. It, it was up until the eviction ban being quite widely abused for tenant for landlords How to say. How is it abuse when it's my only home? How is that an abuse? Yeah, I suppose, is it not it's up genuine. to the agencies to ensure, in, Paul Murphy, that those abuses don't take place? Sure, but but okay. But even in these sort of mm. cases, I think you have to accept it isn't just Jeanette's home. It's also someone else's home who is currently living okay. there now, and they also have rights in these circumstances. And, we, and they're not they're not here to talk about that. And of course, like if if the tenant agreed to leave. Mm. The tenant could leave. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing in the law stopping that. All right, that. So we'll just let Craig Hughes in here. Agrees, Look, you know? it's, it's one story. It's a really difficult um, situation that Jeanette finds herself in. But as Paul points out, it's a very difficult situation for the tenants too to find themselves um, uh, evicted. But it does just, I suppose, illustrate the enormity of this housing crisis and the pressure, constant pressure on this government to try and fix it. No, it does, of course. Um, and of course, it goes back to supply. And I guess because you can find somewhere else, it, it really underscores the issue. Mm. But I think everyone will understand the complexities when, when this legislation is being drafted. And I have to agree with Paul, if there had been any loopholes in there at all, I think we would all expect them to be exploited. And, and given the lack of powers that we see the RTB having, you know, I, I think, you know, I, th I think the political system couldn't trust them to be out there uh, enforcing the level that they need to, pr to protect people. Okay, talk to me about the no confidence motion in Dara O'Brien. What is the process? Well, so there's going to be a slight change tomorrow whereby the government is going to table a motion of confidence uh, in Minister O'Brien. So essentially what that does is just gives the government more speaking time on, on, on the issue. Um, the government have criticised um, uh, Solidarity People before profit, saying it's, you know, it's, it's a political stunt. Um, however, you know, given the scale of the housing crisis, it, it gives the opposition the opportunity on, on the eve of the, of the changeover to lay bare what they see as, as Minister O'Brien's fa failings in housing. Uh, Paul Murphy, Fianna Fáil have said what you want to do is describe the problem again. They're not here to describe the problem. They're here to talk about solutions. That's not what you're interested in. Two months ago, we used our last private member's time to bring forward a motion with a whole series of solutions. 
use it or lose it legislation to deal with the fact that we have 50,000 vacant homes for six years or more, 166,000 vacant properties in total. Um, our rent reduction bill, which would reduce rents to affordable levels to mean that people could actually afford to rent. Investment in building social so and affordable have houses. We have, and, and what did they do with that? They amended it out of existence and they got out. They only, they took one tiny part out of it, which was the evictions ban uh, bill, but they've only done that in a partial way. They haven't protected, protected everybody. So they're not interested in hearing solutions if they don't sit within their framework of housing for profit, throwing money at corporate developers, throwing money at landlords. That's what they're interested in doing and that has utterly failed. And the result is we have record levels of homelessness, we have record levels of rent and we have record house prices. It's right. a catastrophic failure. Uh, Imer Higgins, you can't deny any of that. No, what's... What? Record homelessness, record we rents, have. record house prices. Paul Murphy's correct? No, that, that is the situation. We know that. Massively challenging. And this is the one big issue that has dominated this government's agenda. And it's the one big issue that we are pulling all the levers of the state in to make sure that we resolve. And um, just in the last two and a half years since this government has taken office, we've seen Housing for All uh, launched and actioned. That's going to be 300,000 new homes by the end of this decade. We've afforded all houses... This, but in but, fairness, at the end of this decade, you're talking seven years yeah, away? 300,000 homes built in that time in That's seven years. a long years. time to wait. There was a Redeemer. And it's a lot of homes. This year we're going to build 28,000 new homes. That's a record level. We've got affordable housing um, now happening for the first time, both in terms of affordable to rent and affordable to buy. How many? Um, we've, in my own area, we have 400 new uh, social houses being built at the moment. In Kilcarbury, in my own area, we've got cost rental coming on board there. We've got a, a housing being built right across the country and you can see it. You can see the cranes in the skylines again. But you it's not having an impact up. on the market. That's not, clear. Not immediately. It isn't. It will unfortunately take time. And, and that's no matter who is in government and no matter who the Minister for Housing is. It will unfortunately take time. But we have the plan, we have the budget and we have okay. the determination to deliver Great. to this. Yeah, I, I think the key problem for the government at the moment is there was a report out by that the uh, Chartered 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 uh, of Ireland in that they're predicting a significant shortfall in housing in 2024 and 2025 that's based on kind of the, what, what's operational at the moment so in, unless the government can really come up with new solutions in a very short period of time we're talking about the next year it, it's going to be a catastrophe for the government on the housing front. All right I just want to move on to one of the other stories in the news today and that was Tanishali or Vradkar his comments he said he's confident in his judgment and has the backing of the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party. And it, of course, came, as the Taoiseach said, Mr Bradker was entitled to privacy over the emergence of a video showing him socialising in a nightclub. Here's what the Tonishta had to say. I'm confident in my judgment. Um, I'm confident that I have the support of my Parliamentary Party and of the other coalition partners uh, in government. Um, everyone makes errors in judgment. You wouldn't be a human being if you didn't. Um, but I hope that when it's come to the big calls... Uh, whether it was the management of the pandemic, whether it was Brexit, whether it was managing the economy, um, that I've made the right decisions. Uh, Emer Higgins, the Sunday Independent reporting yesterday, um, themselves on the Sunday Times both covered uh, this video, that there's unrest in the Fine Gael party about this. Is there? Not to my knowledge, no. Um, I mean, we've, we've heard it there from both the Taoiseach and the Taunasha. I believe that everybody's entitled to privacy, everybody, and that includes the Taunasha. So you don't think this raises any questions about the Tonishta's judgment? No, I don't. Uh, and, and he said it himself. Look at his judgment when it came to leading Ireland through Brexit, through the pandemic and through the cost of living crisis. I certainly have no issues with his judgment. Paul Murphy? There's lots of reasons to have lots of doubts about Leo Varadkar's judgment, but this isn't mm. one of them. 
he's entitled to a private life. There's no public interest in discussing it. I don't see that it's an issue whatsoever. I think does, it concern you, does it concern you as a public figure mm -hmm. that this video has been released, is on social media, and now has been spoken about openly by the Taoiseach and the Taunashe and the media? Well, you, you probably can't stop people taking videos and putting them up on social media. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Yeah. But you might expect that the media would be a bit more responsible in terms of this, who would say, no, we're, we're not going to touch that. There isn't a public interest in it. Um, I, think, I think there are things we should be talking about. I think we should be talking about Varadkar's defence to SIPO, which it was what came out okay. during the week was that the Controller and Auditor General, okay, the Ombudsman, and we, yeah, didn't, and we, we, didn't bias the defence that I did it as Taoiseach when I leaked this document to my friend Matthew O'Toole. I think that's the kind of stuff that raises serious questions about errors of judgement. But I think he's entitled to a, a full private life. Yeah, and in fairness, Craig Hughes, I think a lot of media outlets had decided not to discuss this last week. But that changed yesterday with the two Sunday papers running it and then the Taoiseach and the Taunashta commenting about it today. Yeah, I mean, look, we, we made a decision, an editorial decision uh, across the DMG media titles not to run it. We felt there was no public interest at, at all there. And I think also by covering it, you're legitimising a video that, that shouldn't have been taken and shared. There's, there's serious issues around that, which, 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 which we won't go into. But I think, you know, unless, unless there was a serious public interest there, I, I, we just couldn't see, see the justification for doing it. Yeah, does it cross the line, do you think, when we start discussing these things? Because we don't generally in Ireland, I think the media in Ireland has up to now respected the privacy and the private lives of our politicians. Yeah, in, in some regards, um, look, and I think there's, there's other aspects of it that we're, we're kind of that we're, that we're not going to talk about. Mm. Um, 
And like, yeah, no, I, I think it's, it's a sad development uh, in Irish political life, and, and hopefully it, it's, it, it's the last one. Yeah, I mean, I have seen online today people commenting, look, if this was in any other country right across Europe, it would have been published and it would have been discussed about at length that we in Ireland have been afraid to do that. Would you agree? Um, no, not necessarily. I suppose different medias in different countries have different cultures. Um, for me, as I said, I really do believe that everybody's entitled to a private life, no matter who you are. And that's, that's what this is about. It's about a um, member of Parliament's private life. All right, look, we're going to leave it there for now. My thanks to Jeanette for coming in and speaking to us uh, this evening. The rest of my panel is going to be staying with me. Next, Antisocial Ireland and one cafe owner's bad experience. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Well, TD's Emer Higgins, Paul Murphy and journalist Craig Hughes are still with me. And I'm also joined now by a Dublin cafe owner, Stephen Kennedy. Stephen, you are very welcome to the programme. You're the proud owner of Copper and Straw. I know it's a specialty uh, coffee business. And you have three premises, but you've just opened one quite recently, haven't you, in Aston Quay in Dublin city centre? Yeah, so I have the three shops, as you mentioned. Uh, the one in Bray I opened four years ago. My shop in Aaron Quay, which is just beside the four courts. I opened that uh, a little over a year ago in the middle of the pandemic. And then just under three months ago, I opened my shop on Aston Quay. And the shop on Aston Quay is smack bang in the middle of the city centre. It's less than 100 metres from O'Connell Bridge. It's 200 metres from the GPO, one of the most iconic buildings mm -hmm. in the history of the state. We're nestled in between Grafton Street and Henry Street, two of the... So you thought ideal location, plenty of footfall for a coffee business? Yeah, like to be perfectly honest, of the three shops, this was the shop that I was least concerned about in terms of location. We're beside a busy supermarket, we're beneath a gym, uh, we're in the centre of the city, a lot of people living and working in the area, so I really felt that it had enormous potential and I was very excited, and still am extremely excited uh, about opening Aston Key, but it's been a very... It's been a very difficult, it's been a very challenging start. What has made it so difficult and so challenging, Stephen? Um, pretty much from day one, um, we've noticed and experienced pretty continuous drug dealing uh, immediately outside the shop on the corner of Aston Quay. On, uh, you know, it's every five, every 10 minutes, the frequency is just absolutely relentless. And really what we see is, is, is frightening, it's, it's, it's shocking. Um, Bring me through some of the things that you and your staff have witnessed. I think we're actually looking at some photographs taken by the uh, Irish yeah. Times. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, taken in the vicinity of your shop, as you Yeah, know. absolutely. So we see individuals with scarves pulled up over their faces and hooded jackets, uh, counting out cash, dealing drugs. Uh, smoking crack pipes, leaning into the window where customers are seated and my staff are working uh, to smoke uh, crack pipes. And it's not infrequent. And I'm not naive, you know, this is a city centre location. You have to expect a certain amount of challenging behaviour and issues that you need to deal with in a city centre location. And we manage that very effectively in Aaron Key because it's pretty infrequent. We don't have to deal with it all the time. But what we're experiencing and trying to manage in Aston Key is 
continuous. It's, and it's all day, it's, it's every it's day. It's all day, every day, seven days a week, pretty much from 11 a.m. right throughout the day. And it's not just an issue for my business. It's an issue for the large number of people who are living and working in Temple Bar. It's an issue for the people of Dublin who want to come in and visit and enjoy their city. And it's an issue for tourists who get off the bus from the airport right outside my shop and walk in and their jaws are on the floor. They're just horrified <laughs> by what they've seen. And it's interesting, even, even since I spoke out, I got, I've gotten a few emails from individuals who have experienced certain issues on Aston Key. And one of them was from a tourist who's now living in Sacramento in California. And he shared his experience. And I just thought, my God, <laughs> if an individual from the United States is complaining about the level of antisocial activity in an Irish city, you know, it must be pretty extreme. What about the impact on your <clears throat> staff? Uh, yeah, it's been it's been very very difficult. In our fourth week of training, uh, sorry, in our fourth week of trading, we were we were robbed at knife point. Um, this was before nine a.m. on a Thursday morning. Um, an individual with a knife came into the shop, locked the staff in the toilets, and took the takings from the till. And you know, really traumatizing for those staff. Absolutely frightening, shocking, traumatizing, concerning, not the type of thing that you should have to deal with when you work hard every single day. My staff have to get up early, you know, they're, they're on their feet, they're, they're, they're dealing with the public. You know, it's not an easy job. It's a hard, physical, tiring job. And then to have to deal with this type of stuff uh, continuously throughout the day is very, very difficult. Uh, Emer Higgins, have you witnessed open drug dealing in Dublin City? I think a lot of people have, um, and, and that's not what we want. We want our capital to have a stronger, safer community. And that's been a key objective of the Minister for Justice. Um, she, she's um, brought in three kind of big key things to help tackle this issue in the north inner city, if you like. Um, the first is the announcement that we are going to have a new um, guard station on O'Connell Street that will open next year. Um, the second, I suppose, is that probationary guardy. More and more of them are being sent into city centre um, locations, Store Street and Pierce Street Guard station to supplement the Guardi that are already there. And we have two really significant operations, Operation Citizen mm. and Operation Spire, which is really about actually using the resources we have on the ground in Dublin to act tackle that open drug dealing yeah, but to make Operation those arrests. Citizens that you talk about, that came in in October 2021. This is happening in November, mm -hmm. December 2022. Yeah. So it wouldn't sound like it's having the impact well, that business owners would want it to have. Probably not to the full extent, but there's been 7,000 arrests under Operation Citizen and we have Operation Spire, our new one, specific to that north inner city region now. And there's been additional funding made available to the local communities as well for community initiatives that the likes of Dublin Town have come up with to help supplement that the community response as well. But ultimately it comes down to having more Gardaí. That's what we want. We want better visibility of Gardaí on our streets and we have the budget now for a thousand additional Gardaí next year. Yeah, and how many of those Gardaí out of the target were recruited this year? This year there's been 396 new Gardaí and there's a class right now in Templemore as and well. And the target was? I think the target for this year was 600. Um, so we've the class in Templemore at the moment and there's an another recruitment campaign opening as well this year. Uh, Paul Murphy, you're shaking your head. Why? Because the only answer we're hearing is more Gardaí. Like that, that's, that isn't going to be a long-term response here. 
You know, you can throw Gardaí in the short term at it and maybe it'll have an impact, but everyone knows that that isn't the answer to these problems in the long term. It really isn't. It's a, it's a very short term thing, immediate response. So what are but, the but kind you would of agree, things... I, I presume, but, Paul Murphy, sorry, that you still do need that response. Businesses like Stephen mm. deserve that response, surely? Of, of course, we, we need to have a police force. Of course, we need to have a police force. I'm not, I'm not saying we don't need any police force at all. But I'm saying the answer to the problems of drug addiction which this is a part of this, like, you know, and have every, like, it's horrendous what's happening to Stephen, what's happening to his staff. But you do, if you want to have it, an impact in the medium to long term, you have to get in and deal with those issues. So an immediate short term thing, which would have some impact, is a safe injection facility in Dublin city centre. But more broadly than that, we need to have not a criminal approach, but a health-led approach. So the, the drugs and alcohol task forces across the country, they're still suffering from the cuts that happened in 2010 and 2013. They still have lower levels of funding than they had in 2010, when, for example, in, in Tala, we're dealing with a much bigger population, much more diverse problems. So we're not funding the people who are working with those with addiction, and the government is, is determined to take a criminalising approach that just isn't working. Emer, War on drugs across the world has, has failed, and it's failed here too. Emer, just let you come in on that. Oh. The approach that this government's taken to these issues isn't working. Of course we need a criminal approach to this. When you're, dealing, when you're talking about open drug dealing, Rests need to be made. I, I absolutely believe that. Um, I also believe that we need to resource communities better. And we are doing that. And an initiative my local councillor, Kenneth Egan, came up with recently was that some of the funding that's taken from CAB, that's seized from criminal groups, be put back into communities. And that is happening in communities up and down the country. Uh, Craig, this isn't the first time, I think, that we've seen stories of this of late that are making people question this government's commitment to just basic law and order in the city. Yeah, no, there was a there was a documentary on on, on prime time about Road O'Connell Street, which showed you know, similar behaviour, um, very very frightening antisocial behaviour. And um, the teacher was asked in the doll if if he would uh, spearhead a task force on it, and he said, look. I, I can't spearhead every task force, but he, and he felt it was the role of local authorities to take more of an, of, um, an active role in it. I'm not, I'm so, but Eamon seems to be saying that the Minister for Justice has been leading on this. But I think it is significant when you have a centralisation of addiction services, when you don't have an injection facility, you know, it's no surprise then that you're going to have addicts use, using drugs in public. That's something that, that, that wasn't activated there as well. And I think for, for, for a long time, we've had a chronic lack of services for people with addiction issues. So, so it isn't surprising then when you have this culminative effect afterwards. I'm just wondering what response you've had from Gardaí, because obviously, first and foremost, that's what you want near your premises, uh, Stephen. Yeah. Are you seeing an increased presence there? Um, Emer mentioned Operation Spire, Operation Citizen. Is that working? Yeah, like the meetings that I've had with the Guardi and with some of my local politicians, everybody talks to me about Operation Citizen. And for me, that's a very catchy soundbite. But that's really about reassuring the public that the streets are safe by a more visible guard of presence. And that's not what I see. Uh, the guards that I work with on the ground, and I know these individuals on a first name basis now, are stunningly good at their jobs. They are knowledgeable, experienced people who have given us great support. But for me, this is really a resource issue. And I take Paul's point and I do accept it. Like the, the people that we see using drugs are in the most tragic, upsetting situation. Mm -hmm. They are marginalized and they are vulnerable. But the people I see dealing the drugs are sober, mm -hmm. they're alert, they're sharp, they're doing a busier trade than my coffee shop. And we know that this is happening. It's not happening on a remote corner of some random housing estate where a degree of luck or intelligence is needed. This is happening 
every minute of the day practically in the middle of the city centre. So I do think that a stronger response is required. And really what I'm asking for is specific targeted measures and not out of current resources. There needs to be additional resources to put into this. All right, we're going to have to leave it there. But Stephen, thank you for coming in and thank speaking you. to us this evening. My thanks to Emer, to Paul, to Craig and to Stephen. Next on uh, the programme, The Big Freeze. We'll give you the very latest on that and a tough Christmas for charity appeals. Do stay with us. Welcome back. Ireland has recorded its lowest temperature since the big freeze of 2010 with freezing conditions forecast for the week. I'm joined by Alan O'Reilly from Carlow Weather for the very latest on the cold spells. And what's the picture tonight and tomorrow then, Alan? Well, it's already down to minus six degrees again at some stations in the northern part of the country. Some freezing fog persisting into tonight, especially in the northern half of the country. Some showers have pushed into the south and the east, which unfortunately will lead to some very icy conditions where they freeze afterwards. And then there is a risk of some sleet and snow showers pushing into South Cork and Kerry through tonight and tomorrow morning. But really turning very cold again then over the coming days. Wednesday night could be the coldest night of the spell. Temperatures forecast to drop to minus nine degrees again and staying bitterly cold really right up until Saturday. Probably less fog around is probably the only good news, really, but staying bitterly cold by night and day, I'm afraid. Um, and we're just looking at some footage there of uh, the roads around Ireland. And when I drove in myself this evening, the fog was incredibly thick. Visibility was very difficult. What are driving conditions like for people tomorrow morning? Yes, they will vary widely, really, um, where that fog persists, especially really kind of northern half of the country, you're going to have freezing fog, so very dense fog again. But unfortunately, where those showers have fallen and then frozen, you could have some very locally icy conditions. Um, it won't be as cold quite near the south coast, but inland risk of sleet and snow showers as well, especially in Cork and Kerry. So very challenging conditions again, especially where there's any kind of fall of even rain that has now frozen, but uh, still very foggy in northern half of the country. So that fog is still going to be a problem in the morning. Now, I know it's still quite a way off, but the weekend after next is, of course, Christmas. And a lot of people will be taking to the road to travel home to see family and friends. Is there any indication of what the weather will be like? It's very difficult to forecast beyond Saturday. It does look like it's going to turn milder for Sunday, probably some wet and windy weather for a time. Some of the weather models, though, show that the mild air will be very short-lived and will turn back to cooler weather for maybe a few days next week. So it's very uncertain beyond that. I wouldn't be betting on a white Christmas, though, Claire, if it was me at this moment in time. But uh, I wouldn't also be putting away the woolly jumper after the weekend. Oh, no, we'll definitely not be putting away the thermals, that's for sure. All right, uh, Alan Riley, thank you for that update. And of course, a reminder to all drivers out there to drive with caution. Now, I'm joined by Trokeras Kiva Dabara for more on the charity's annual Christmas fundraising appeal. Good evening to you, Kiva. Thank you for coming into us. How important is this time of the year for the charity sector? Christmas is an incredibly important time of the year. For many charities, it is the time of the year where they bring in the vast 
vast bulk of their public income and people are very generous. So over the Christmas period, while people are of course focused on their own families and things they want to do at home, almost everyone in Ireland will always look at what they can do to support charities, usually charities they care about, charities they've got a personal relationship with. But it's an extremely important time and I suppose for the charity sector, it's a nervous time as well. As we head into Christmas, the income doesn't really start coming in until very close to Christmas Day and we know that people are facing a challenging Christmas this year, maybe more than in the last few years even. And that is... I presume, a real concern for charities because we've heard so much about the energy crisis, the cost of living crisis and the financial pressure that so many households are under. Yes, that's exactly it. And here in Ireland, we're experiencing those crises, but we're experiencing it in a context of a country that does have a very strong social welfare system and a taxation system where the government can, you know, do, do cert, put in place certain measures to protect people. But in the countries that Throcra works in, that's certainly not the case. But the same global economic pressures are facing ordinary people. So people who live very marginally on what they have are very badly affected by this global economic crisis as well. Tell me about um, the countries where you're focusing your efforts this year and next year. So this Christmas we're focusing on Syrian refugees in Lebanon. So people will remember the Syrian war which started 12 years ago but may not realise that there are still 1.5 million Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Now Lebanon is a tiny country with an extremely fragile economy. It has the same population as the population of Ireland but still they host 1.5 million Syrian refugees. Most of those are women and children who've been separated from their husbands. Maybe their husbands were fighting in the war, were captured, were left behind or have left and moved on. And they are extremely vulnerable. Um, I think it's timely that we were just talking about the cold weather here in Ireland, something that we're not terribly well used to. But I think if I describe the situations in the Becca Valley in Lebanon, it is like what we're experiencing now in Ireland, but multiplied by 10 and it lasts for months. So you have women and children and elderly people living in tents which are covered in snow for many months at a time. They are burning their clothes, they're burning rubbish because they have nothing to heat their very little, very small shed, uh, tents with. Um, people are desperate. They don't have the right to work except for in very basic menial labour. Often women are on their own and therefore cannot leave their children and cannot go out to work. So they're reliant on the very small amount of humanitarian aid that reaches them either from the UN or from organisations like Trocra. Because there would be no support from the Lebanese government for these people? It's simply not possible. A government like the Lebanese government that's experiencing economic freefall is really struggling to look after its own extremely vulnerable citizens. And the fact that Lebanon is hosting and protecting 1.5 million people from Syria in itself is something that they should be very proud of. You know, we all know that there are huge demands when, when it comes to hosting people from, from other countries, um, but they have opened their doors. But it's very difficult for them to support people, which is why organizations like Throker provides such valuable and important support. So for women and girls in particular, we provide a safe space because domestic violence and violence trafficking, trafficking into prostitution, um, these issues are huge. They are absolutely devastating. So we provide protection. We also provide food and shelter. Um, these Very tents, basic things. Basic things. The tents get knocked down, pulled down by the weight of snow. So we provide tarpaulin and wooden materials so that people can rebuild their tents when the snow pulls them down.
Um, does it concern you that, as you said, the Syrian war has been going on now for 12 years, but it has fallen right down the news agenda, hasn't it? It certainly does. You know, every humanitarian catastrophe has people behind it who live and who hope and who just don't want to be forgotten. And I travel frequently. I was in the Becca Valley speaking with women just a few months ago. And, you know, what they're asking for is to be treated with dignity and not to be forgotten. But around the world, this is very often the case, be it in the Horn in East Africa, where as a result of climate and, and conflict, you have millions of people suffering from a very, very devastating drought and losing their children by the hundreds or thousands every day. And we have covered that on the programme and the images are absolutely devastating coming from the Horn of Africa this year. They are, but these issues are, are not things that we can do nothing about. You know, climate change is something that we need to grapple with. COP27, which is not long in the past, it was on one hand a success in that there was agreement on loss and damage funding for poorer countries. But on the other hand, we really need to push for much stronger work on mitigation to reduce the impact of climate change. And speak to me about the conditions that those people in the Horn of Africa that you refer to are, are living in. What is their life like? It is brutal. It is incredibly harsh. So in Somalia, where Trokra works in the southern region of Gedo, hundreds of thousands of people have watched their cattle, which is what they live on, die and have had to up and walk for three, four, maybe up to 10 days with their children and nothing else to try and reach a place of safety where they might receive some food. But unfortunately, because of the volume of need around the world, the humanitarian aid that's available simply doesn't stretch far enough or to everyone. So often families bury loved ones on the roadside as they walk to try and reach assistance. The Irish government has responded and responded well over the last number of months, but much more needs to be done. And we're heading into 2023, which as a result of climate change and the global economic recession is going to be the worst year on record in terms of humanitarian need. So organisations like Trokra, we really need this Christmas campaign to help us to respond to people like the women I met in the Becca Valley in Lebanon and the mothers whom I met in Somalia whose children were literally hanging on, supported by our clinics. All right, uh, thank you, Kiefer, for coming in and speaking to us as always. Well, that's it from us here on The Tonight Show. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms and you can find us on Instagram and TikTok. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.